have your Bibles, we're in Galatians 3. We're actually going to be finishing it up with verses 23 through 29 today. Speaking of Bibles, I'm doing something very dangerous this week. It's something that has me really anxious, but yet it's something I, I really want to do. I received a gift, a, a pastor appreciation gift from Chris and Tracy to get my, my Bible uh, re-leathered. And it's, it's just, I don't know what type of leather was on it or whatever, but it's all falling apart now. And I've been preaching out of this Bible for like 13 years now. Every sermon that I've prepped or preached in the past 13 years, since before the journey, it's happened with this thing. This is my security blanket when it comes to preaching. It really is. And I, I'm like, I'm going to send this thing away. This is, this is like more precious than gold to me because, you know, you get comfortable with a certain Bible. If you hand me a different Bible, or next week I'm going to, I'm going to be preaching out of a different Bible next week. I, I don't even, I, where's stuff at? Like, I'm going to be like, Genesis, is that towards the beginning? Like, here, like, muscle memory kicks in. Uh, I can, like, find stuff, and I got my notes in here, and my highlighted verses and things like that. And, oh, man, to send it off, I, I'm like, who am I? Can I still preach if I don't have this Bible, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it's funny, though, the things that really play into our identity as people. A lot, of, a lot of things shape how we think about ourselves and our abilities and, and things like that. And I got to thinking about, um, I got to thinking about this as I was preparing this sermon this week. And so I was like, well, what, what are those factors that shape your identity? Well, when I set out to answer that question, I did what any one of us self-respecting individuals would do. I Googled it. All right, I get on Google and what, what determines our identity? How, what shapes our identity in this world? So according to Google, it kept bringing me back to what the world of psychology refers to as the big eight. The big eight characteristics that help you define who you are. Here they are. Uh, number one is age, then your race, your gender, your abilities, your religion, your class, uh, your sexual orientation, and uh, the last but not least, your immigration status. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> like, the other ones I kind of expected, but immigration status, I wasn't ready for that one. Those are the things, according to Google, that you need to understand about yourself if you're going to have uh, an identity. If you're having an identity crisis, you need to go to those, the big eight, and that'll help you figure out who you are. All right, some of those made some logical sense, but you know, I wasn't satisfied with that answer, so... I took it to the next level. This is the year 2023. We have artificial intelligence at our fingertips. I have the chat GPT app on my phone, and I got it out, busted open that app, and was like, who am I, right? I kind of expected him to ask me the same thing. <laughs> you tell me, who am I? Well, chat GPT uh, set out to answer that question for me and says, well, here you go, buddy. Here's 12 steps that you need to take in order to figure out who you are. I'm not going to go through all 10 or all 12 of those steps, but I, I, I started to get uh, cracked up a little bit because by, by the time I got to step 12, it, it was like, you know what? You need to seek professional help. <laughs> like, you know I'm a robot, right? You need to, act, you, 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 uh, you need to get some help, buddy. Uh, it, it was pretty good. But like it or not, each of us in here do have an identity. Each of us in here are being shaped by several different factors in our life. And we want to know our identity. Because when we know our identity, it comes with a, a greater sense of self-awareness. 
Uh, it's, it's critical to know your identity because it brings you a, uh, a level of fulfillment. Uh, it enhances your well-being. It enhances the quality of your relationships. It, en it allows you to contribute to society. At least that's what ChatGPT tells me. <laughs> that's, that's what it said. Well, remember the book of Galatians that we're studying right now. It was one of the first New Testament letters to circulate amongst Christians. It was like number one or number two. One of the first pieces of information that Christians were um, edified by in, in the first century there. And Christians in the first century really needed this letter to help shape their identity. They had suddenly become something new. They were a new creation. God's people were this new creation, and it created a bit of an identity crisis. It completely jolted their grasp on who they were. And it really makes sense when you think of it in those terms. If you were suddenly, if, if one day you were, the, you were this lifelong, law-abiding Jew, and then you hear the gospel, it radically changes your heart, well, you've got a lot to sort out. There's a lot of implications to that. It's no wonder they were going through an identity crisis at that time. If you were a pagan Greek Gentile and you heard the gospel for the first time and believed and your heart was radically changed, you had a lot to sort out in your life. The implications of that were huge. And then you take these two gospel-believing groups, these, these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians, you co-mingle them, and they have, their, you know, they, they both are in this identity crisis, and the Jews were beginning to, to try to help school the Gentiles, and they schooled them in the wrong way. They started to say, well, listen, okay, as we try to figure out who we are now in Christ and, and sort all of this out, it's probably the case that you guys need to be Jewish. You need to act like us. Jesus was a Jew. Christianity came from Judaism. This makes sense for you to be a Jew, so you act like us. You guys need to get circumcised. You guys need to follow our dietary laws. You guys need, need to offer sacrifices at the temple like a good Jew would. And so Paul writes this letter to the Galatian churches. There were several of them. He writes them this letter to say, no, no, that's entirely wrong. That is not your identity. Your identity is not being a Jew. Your identity is in Christ now. And so the gospel it reframed how they thought about God and how they thought about themselves. It does the same thing for you and I. It does the exact same thing for you and I. You and I will go through an identity crisis at times in our life. We need the book of Galatians to help reframe our identity. And again, you know, it's, it's no wonder that these Jewish Christians were having a hard time and confused in this way. You know, if, they did, if they've been following the law their whole life. They've been doing it a certain way the whole time. And then all of a sudden, the, the gospel invades their life, and it, and it changes their value system. It reframes everything. And so if I'm not following the law, who am I? If they aren't following the law, who are they? Well, Paul's like, L let me help you sort all of this out. Well, you and I live in a world, again, in which there are a lot of things uh, competing to define you. And a lot of um, people groups and institutions that want to tell you who you are and uh, tell you what your worth is based on. And it can really mess with your head. It's no wonder people go through identity crisis all the time. I mean, it's, I, I feel like this world, we live in this age, that our culture lives in a time in which they're like, okay, let's, let's get out the, our rating system so we can figure out your identity. 
uh, let's see, your skin color, that gets you this many points. You know, your family history, that gets you this many points. Okay, let's look at your history of bad decisions. Ooh, point deduction, yes. Let's look at your immigration status. I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't know. Like, all of those things, how much, how, how many of those big eight characteristics really shape who you are and have a, a huge impact in your life? I, I think these seven verses helped Christians in the first century, and I think these seven verses are really helpful for us today. I think these seven verses are the Holy Spirit's way of teaching you today. Hey, I know, you know how the world sees you. Let me tell you how I see you. This is God's way of saying, let me remind you of how I see you and how I uh, see your sense of worth. And, and let me teach you and remind you how you are to see the Christians seated around you. That's what these seven verses do. And that's why they're so important for us today. So, again, the, the world says there's eight defining characteristics that determine your worth and where you're headed in life. Galatians 3, 23 through 29 this is God's way of saying, actually, it really boils down to three things or I want you to take note of. Three, here are my three defining characteristics about you that will determine your worth and where you are headed in life. So let's just start with verses 23 and 24. Paul's going to set the table of these three points first. Let me remind you about the law and its purpose. We, we kind of talked about that last week. I saved these two verses to kind of help us set the table for these three big points today. So look at verses 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So Paul's saying, remember how we got here. Remember how we got to the point in which we have faith in Christ. It was through the law. The law played a really important role. That Old Testament law handed down from God to his people through the prophet Moses. That law served a really special purpose and everyone needs to understand it. This law, it held God's people captive with a bunch of do's and don'ts. It imprisoned them in the reality of their own sin. That that law that we talked about last week, it restrained them, in a sense. It restrained their sinning. And the fact that they needed restrained, that revealed something about them. They were hopelessly sinful. They had a major sin problem. They had all fallen short of the glory of God. You and I are in the same boat. I was playing softball last week, and uh, last Monday, and I was on third base. And I got distracted in the middle of the game because of this little four-year-old that was playing just on the other side of the fence. He was uh, giving his mom a run for money <laughs> that Monday night, getting into everything and, and uh, making it hard for her to enjoy her time there. But this, this little boy was like, he wanted to get on that field more than anything. And she's like, no, you cannot, do not go through that gate. Well, when you're a four-year-old and your mom says, do not do that one thing, that's the one thing you want to do more than anything in the whole world, right? And that's what was happening in that moment. This, this four-year-old was like, he was going up to the bars, the poles, like putting his face through, trying to stick it through. I'm trying to play softball, and I just can't stop laughing at this kid and watching him. At one point, he sticks his whole leg through, and he's like got his foot on the field, and he's just looking his mom right in the eye while he's doing it. Uh, it, it, it was great. 
uh, it was fun for me anyway, uh, and for that kid, but not for the mom. But like, his mom told him no, informed him, do not go on that field. That fence was preventing him from actually going onto the field. And his actions in that moment uh, made his desires crystal clear. He was a rebel. The law serves the same role in our lives. That law was God's way of informing his people, do not do these things. And that law restrained God's people from doing those things that deep down they wanted to do because there were consequences. But it revealed something about them. It taught them something. Again, they were rebels, rebelling against the creator. You and I are in the same exact boat. And it's why those, this is why those do's and don'ts are so important for us to understand. And why, that, why the role of the law is so important to understand. That law was like a guardian for God's people. Did you, did you see that verse? The law, this is in verse 24, the law, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Your translation may not say guardian. So if you look at different translations, you may, you look at five different English translations of this verse, you may see five different words there for guardian. Your, your version may say uh, tutor, you know, the law was a tutor. Uh, your, your version may say schoolmaster, if you're reading the, the King James Version. And uh, in my ESV, uh, says guardian. So when I look at those three words in English, a, is the law a guardian, is it a tutor, or is it a schoolmaster? Those three words mean three very different things. Those, those roles function in very different ways. And so th that's a clue to us. When we're reading our Bible and, and translators are choosing so many different words for that one Greek word, that's a clue to us. They're having a problem. And it probably means that our English language doesn't have just that exact one-for-one -one word that they need right now. And so what do you got to do in those situations? Well, you got you to go do my favorite thing in the whole world. You get to do a word study. I love studying words and where they come from. And so I, that's what I did with this word guardian. And, man, it really brought to light just what Paul is saying here. When you look into that Greek word, it's, it's pedagogos. And that Greek word and that culture, it really isn't a guardian. And it really isn't a tutor. And it really isn't a schoolmaster. None of those words really cut it when it comes to the Greek word pedagogos. And here, here's why. I'll, I'll, I'll share with you the definition of that word. That word was a type of, that it described a type of slave that existed in Roman and Greek cultures. So if I was a wealthy Roman citizen, and I had three sons as I do today, I would hire, or I would, I would buy, I would purchase a pedagogos. I would purchase a slave to make sure that my kids get to school on time, and to make sure that my kids get home from school on time. That pedagogos, or that guardian, that tutor, that schoolmaster, that pedagogos would actually be a, a disciplinarian for my kids, make sure they get all their homework done. And they would literally carry a rod and follow the kids to and from school. And when they would get out of line, whack, right? Let's bring back the pedagogos. <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking as I was studying this. But, you know, but here's the thing. This is, this is what Paul's saying here. It's the perfect word to describe how the law functioned. The law was like this paid disciplinarian. If, if we had to choose the exact 
English word, I would have chosen the word nanny after I read that definition. The law was like this nanny, this hired disciplinarian that helped take care of your kids. It kept them in line until just the right time when God would redeem his people through sending his son, Jesus. And just like the pedagogos, that law wasn't meant to be forever. Eventually, a child becomes of age. They don't need to be followed around with the pedagogos. Well, God's people had, throughout redemptive history, come to a point in time in which they had come of age. And, it, and the law had served its purpose. They had now come of age, and, and it wasn't meant to be forever. Things are different now. Look at verse 25. It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That guardian did its job perfectly. The Old Testament, a big chunk of your Bible, it's, it's redemptive history. It's Old Testament proof that people are hopelessly sinful. Without a doubt, everybody is messed up. Everybody is in need of a savior. That's what it taught us. That's how it tutored us. That's how it disciplined us. Lesson learned. Now that faith in Christ has come, we don't need that tutor anymore. We have the answer to our sin problem. It's Jesus. And so that changes things. That reframes things for us. Now, our identity isn't wrapped up in our performance and our adherence to the law. Now, our identity as God's people is wrapped up in the performance of Jesus who fulfilled that law. A totally different frame of thinking about our faith in God. A, a totally different way of identifying with God. It changed everything. But what does that mean? How do I do this? How do I understand myself in light of Christ's fulfillment of the law? Paul would say it's not the big eight. It's actually the big three. Three defining characteristics, and it's how you identify uh, yourself uh, in Jesus Christ. Here's number one. You identify yourself. You, you, are son, you are a son of God. That's number one. Every single person in this room, if you are a Christian, you should see yourself, identify as a son of God. Let's read verses 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Super important verse there. When you think of who you are before God, you need to think of yourself as a son of God. Now, here we go again. Depending on what translation you're reading, it may not be sons of God. You might be seeing children of God. If you're reading the NIV, you see children of God. If you're reading the NLT, if you're reading the KJV, you're seeing children of God instead of sons of God. Tisk tisk. That is the wrong word. Because when you get into that Greek, it is not children of God. It is sons of God. You may think, well, well, weren't they just trying to be more inclusive? We don't want to exclude the ladies here. So let's say children of God, because that sounds more inclusive. Not so fast. He chose that word for a very specific reason. And if you change it from sons of God to children of God, you ladies will be missing out on the profound truth that Paul is trying to communicate to you specifically. In their day and in their time, 
a daughter could not inherit any property. They wouldn't inherit anything. Only the sons inherited the property from their fathers. Only the sons. They had a special privilege in that culture and in that time. But when Paul says we are heirs in Christ, we are sons of God. All of us, even you ladies, you need to think of yourself as a son of God in this sense. You are equally legal heirs with every single man in this room. It's, it's, it's level the playing field. Words are super important, and we should not change them when we translate the Bible. And sometimes when we look at these metaphors in Scripture, there's a masculine metaphor there, and it's there for a good reason. We just sang about a feminine metaphor, didn't we? We just sang about how the church is the bride of Christ, so God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. We, as men, we are to think of ourselves as the bride of Christ. We don't want to change the bride of Christ to something else. I am a part of the bride of Christ, just like you ladies are a part of being the bride of Christ. That means something that helps us to understand our connection, our commitment that we have to the groom who is Jesus. And so, ladies, just like we men identify as the bride of Christ, you ladies should identify as the sons of God. It's extreme that Paul said that in his, in his day. It's extreme. It's very countercultural what he did in his day. Paul wants to build on this. Sons of God, well, they wear special clothing. So that's how it worked in Roman culture again. So in Roman culture, when you would come of age as a son of your father, you're, you're a real man now. How, how are we going to identify you as a real man? Well, we're going to have a ceremony in which we give you a special toga. And we're going to have a toga party so everybody knows you're a man now. And then universities, we really changed that one, didn't we? <laughs> the toga party. Doesn't mean what it used to <laughs> originally. Uh, but you can see where they got it now, right? Well, sons of God, through faith in Christ, when they come of age, they put on a special clothing. And, and in this uh, context, what he's explaining to us here is our clothing, our toga, is Jesus himself. We wear his righteousness, his credentials as our justification, like we're putting on that toga, becoming of age as a believer. That's our identity. Now it's important to understand that in verse 27, Paul's not talking about our water baptism. When he, when he says that for those of us who, are, as we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, he's not talking about our literal physical baptism. He's talking about how we put on who Christ is. We immerse ourselves into the life of Christ. That's what he's trying to say. And so being Im immersed in the life of Christ is like wearing him like clothing. So you, Paul loves the clothing analogy. This is your homework text. If you want to look at all of the clothing analogies, there's just a few more. If you, uh, if you like to jot these notes down and look at them later for a devotional time, write these three verses down. Romans 13, 12, he uses a clothing analogy, much like he does here. Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24, and Colossians 3, verse 12. There's a unique meaning in all of those, but he loves this clothing analogy because it makes sense. It's practical. Your clothing tells us who you are. It just does. You go walk through the hallways of this high school this week, and everyone, whether they, they like to admit it or not, they're all wearing a uniform. 
You can look at how they dress, and that tells you a lot about who they are. Oh, there goes the emo kids. You know what they look like. There goes the jocks. We know what they look like. There goes the preppy kids. Oh, there's the nerds. There's the dorks. There goes the rich kids, and there are the poor kids. Your, your, your clothing, it serves like a purpose, right? You can look at what I'm wearing. This is like pastor clothing. I could, I could do pastor clothes for days, man. <laughs> like, uh, it's, this is my uniform. But it tells us a lot. It tells the people around me who I am, what I do. And your clothing does the same exact thing. We're all wearing uniforms. Paul's building on that very practical analogy. When you're a believer, when you find your identity in Christ, we are to immerse ourselves in who Christ is and what he taught and how he lived. We do this like putting them on like clothes and then we can be identifiable. Like it means adhering to his teaching, imitating his life. It means living in light of what he's done. His, his glory covers my shame. It also means like I have what Jesus has. Like Jesus has as the son of the father, he has the love of the father. And when I'm in Christ, I have the love of the father. Jesus, he has full access to the Father as the Son of God. And when I am in Christ and when you are in Christ, you get to have that too. So in Christ, how you think about that, we are sons of God. That is awesome. And that should shape how you think about who you are in relationship to God. That's the first defining characteristic. Here's the third one. You are one with all of the other Christians. You are one with all of the other Christians. Look at verse 28. Here's, here's one you've probably heard before because it's plucked out uh, of context all the time. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, you sons of God who are clothed in Christ, you are all one. In Christ Jesus so just in the same way that the law leveled the playing field and determined that you're all sinners the gospel determines that we are all acceptable to God in Christ it levels the playing field once again so the gospel welcomes everyone regardless of your race regardless of your heritage your social standing your gender all of that stuff that, you know, or whatever else that is in the big eight that is irrelevant when you are in Christ. That, that, that means you are in the family of God, and that's, that's that. Now again, verse 28, you've probably seen this verse used a thousand different ways, and you've probably seen it attached to a million different agendas, and it's used in all sorts of incorrect ways. Clearly, Paul is not saying we should obliterate uh, we, he's not saying that we should uh, obliterate all of these distinctions that we make in society. They're there, and they serve a purpose, right? He's not saying get rid of all of those. I mean, you know, when we, when we think of uh, the family unit, Paul teaches on that. And those are, uh, you know, there are gender roles there, and there are, there are a di family dynamics there. It means something to be a son or a daughter, and he uses that. He develops that. Those distinctions are there in, in terms of family and society. He's not throwing all of that out the window, you know. I mean, if you want to take this verse and you want to use it to um, argue against racism or sexism or slavery, 
Yes, amen, great, do it. But Paul's primary concern has nothing to do with that. His, he has a spiritual concern here. That's what this verse is about. He has a spiritual concern in this context, and it's a very clear concern. He is describing a spiritual reality, just like he does in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the concern he has. So in the kingdom of God, Paul wants you to know, there's no such thing as a second-class citizen like there is in our world. In the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as a second-class citizen. Everyone in Christ has equal access to spiritual blessings, to spiritual resources, to the promises of the kingdom. They're equally given to all who believe. Your, your ethnicity, your social status, your gender, they're non-factors when it comes to that. You know, that's a big, that's a big change. That's a big change. You know, that kind of rocks our world and the way we think and the way we're programmed to think in our day, doesn't it? Because those distinctions, our gender, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, those are big factors, whether we like it or not. Those are big factors in our experience in this world. If you're a woman in this world, you're going to have a different experience than a man in this world. If you're rich in this world, you're going to have a different experience than if you're poor in this world. Those distinctions are there. And... I can tell you this, our culture, I think we could all agree, we are obsessed with making those distinctions, aren't we? It's like shoved in your face, it always has to be at the forefront because, well, when we're being honest, I mean, your experience in this world is going to be greatly affected by the big eight. But God wants us to know that his kingdom doesn't operate like that, and that's, that's pretty helpful. You know, I, I, I kind of think in this world... Human beings are obsessed with feeling superior, uh, superior to other human beings. That's just truth. It just is what it is. Humans love to feel superior to other humans. And they use the big eight to be able, that's the means by which they can feel superior. So that's why those are so important to our culture and our time in which we live. And that's why they were so important back then too. But God wants us to know, my kingdom doesn't work like that. You live in this world, yeah, it works a lot like that. It's frustrating. There's a lot of injustice there. But God's world, God's kingdom, it is just. The good news of the gospel is that none of those factors affect who you are in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It levels the playing field. Our status is the same. If you're a Christian in here, your status is redeemed. Your, your clothing, all of our clothing is the same. It's Jesus. He is our clothing. So when you think about who you are, your identity in Christ, you need to think of it in these terms. Right? You are sons of God. You are all one in Christ. And number three, this third defining characteristic, we are all heirs according to the promise. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's a big mindset shift. That would have jolted any Jew. Because in that day and age, every Jew could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. It was a big part of who they were. 
They knew exactly what tribe of the 12 tribes that their lineage connected to. It was a really big deal. And I don't know about you, but I have zero. I, I did the 23andMe DNA test. I, I did it. And I, I, I had all kinds of different numbers in there. I, I, I didn't have a single percentage point for the Jew ethnicity. I, I don't have a single drop in these veins. <laughs> it's, it's not there. I could not trace my lineage back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Even with a single percentage point, there's no way I could do it. But there's a major mindset shift, mindset shift here. God wants me to know through New Testament letters like Galatians, I'm adopted into that family. I wasn't born into it, but I was adopted into that kingdom through Christ. And that adoption ensures that I am an equal heir to the spiritual promise, to the, to the spiritual promise given to Abraham. That means a Jew, they would go back and they would look at that promise to Abraham that we studied in Genesis 15 and they would find their identity in it. And because of Christ, you and I do the same Thing. We are numbered in the stars. We are a part, a recipient of this promise through Jesus. Faith in the promises of God. That's what defines us. That's our identity. Let's nourish that identity in a time of communion. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this teaching in Galatians. Each and every one of us in here from time to time in our life have gone through an identity crisis. We're being told who we are. We're being defined by other people all the time. It gets confusing. It gets overwhelming. But Lord, we have something secure to identify with. We have something that never changes. Lord, some of the, some of the characteristics that this world assigns me it greatly affects my experience in this world. Sometimes those characteristics that I have in my life that are out of my control, sometimes those are, are good things for me and sometimes those are bad things for me. Lord, you give us these three characteristics so that we can have something that never changes, that, that is your love for us through Christ. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and being in relationship with you through your son means that I can be secure in who I am before you. I can have confidence there. I can have security there. I can have stability there. All these worldly characteristics, Lord, it just it feels like such shaky ground, shifting sands. Lord, we have, we have concrete. We have something stable to stand on when we are in Christ, and we thank you for that, Lord. And it's in your name, Jesus. Amen.